0: It's June 29, 2020. This is Rook. this is an information age that's fueled by outrage and a deepening despair around who and what to believe competing media clickbait technology trolls social media spirals all make it difficult to weed through to the truth but this is even more animated when it comes to Iran. How are we supposed to know exactly what's happening with our friends and family on the ground? No one narrative can be believed, but a German journalist who's been on the front lines in Tehran for the last 15 years? Maybe she can shed some insight. Award-winning German-Iranian reporter Natalie Amiri joins me today, as well as a feature interview with Ahmad Stami. I'm Gian Gomeshi, this is Rook. episode number 22 of Rook. Hope you're doing well out there. Khoshhalim ke Hi, Shaijun.
1: Hello, hi.
0: Listen, you know if you're of Iranian descent or have any interest at all in Persian culture, you will have heard the name Kiarostami. Abbas Kiarostami was, of course, one of the greatest filmmakers of any country or culture ever, and an undeniable cultural icon of 20th and 21st century Iran. Uh, Last week would have been his 80th birthday. Later this week will be the fourth anniversary of his sad passing in uh, 2016. In about 45 minutes from now, I expect to be joined by Ahmad Kirastami, his son, uh, the filmmaker, the entrepreneur, and now the founder of the Kirastami Foundation, which, amongst other things, on the occasion of his 80th birthday last week, uh, donated all of his awards to the Museum of Cinema, I believe, in Iran. Yes,
2: Musee Cinema.
0: Musee Cinema. Um, so we will get to Ahmad Kirastami. But first, amidst her love for her homeland and a prolific record of exhibiting courage as a journalist in Iran, my first guest today has been one of the few international reporters who in the past 15 years has observed one storm after another in Iran on the ground there and told the story of a nation and a country to millions of viewers around the world. She is an esteemed journalist in news broadcasting with a remarkable career who has covered political uprisings, economic crises, nuclear deals, and who believes an isolated society like Iran must have a thriving per- Natalie Amiri is an award-winning German-Iranian journalist. Born in Munich to a German mother and an Iranian father, Natalie grew up going to Catholic church and eating Gourmet Sabzi. Natalie took a job at the German embassy in Tehran for a time and has worked for numerous news programs and magazines and television radio stations, including ARD Broadcasters and Deutschland Radio. She has reported from war zones and the sites of natural disasters around the world, including Europe, Iran, Syria, Libya, Egypt, and Afghanistan, and has interviewed powerful Iranian politicians such as Rafsan Jani, Mousavi, Khatami, Ahmadinejad, and Larijani, as well as important figures like Nasrin Sotudeh, among others. In addition to being fluent in German and English, Natalie also speaks Farsi, Arabic, Dari, and French. And right now, Natalie Amiri, ARD's Chief Correspondent of Tehran's Bureau for the past five years, joins me from Munich, Germany. Hi, Natalie.
3: Hi. It's
0: a pleasure to have you on this program. Thank you for doing this. You know, I I knew you were a German journalist. I knew you had some Iranian background. I knew you had done some work in Iran. I did not know that you've been reporting from Iran until just last month. So uh, let me start with this how would you characterize life in Iran right now amidst sanctions, saber-rattling with the United States and trying to emerge from a pandemic?
3: It's like you said, It's um, I'm in Iran and I was working in Iran since 2005. So I saw Ahmadinejad, I saw the uprising 2009, which um, were called Hashta to Hash the, um, the Green Movement. I saw... Um, when the people had um, to struggle against the economic crisis i saw um so many things but now they reached a disaster because they are facing the u.s sanctions which are really hitting the country they are facing corona they're facing mistrust against the regime because um, they saw what happened in the last past month and um, they're just it's like a whole depression over the country so i i am i'm listening to so many stories and i heard of so many people who committed suicide in the last months because they're so depressed and frustrated and they have no hope anymore so there were always a glimpse of hope during the time when i was there but now it's like a death end they don't know how it's going on and they say It cannot go on with the small demonstration on the streets. It's like it has to explode. Something has to happen because they're so fed up with everything.
0: It's it's even difficult to hear that response. Um, And I want to untangle it or get into some of what you've said there. But let me just start with the pandemic uh, and what's been happening with COVID. Iran was one of the early epicenters, of course, of COVID-19. You know, Natalie, on the outside... We've heard these wildly varying reports about the impact of COVID in Iran from the idea that Iran has somehow managed it, you know, which would be the official line from the government. And it's kind of over with now uh, or, you know, managed to a notion that there have been millions infected and the information has been suppressed, um, especially as we see the cases soaring in the United States again. Now, what is your sense of the truth uh, about this pandemic on the ground in Iran?
3: Look, they were faking the numbers from the beginning, and um, they knew, and I was talking to a lot of doctors in Tehran and in Qom, they knew that um, the virus was already in Iran at the beginning of the year. So in January, they had already patients with this virus, but nobody were telling the people in Iran that, um, look, take care on the streets, wear masks, whatever, they were not talking about the virus because they wanted that the people come to the election on um, February. And the government knew that the people will not come this time because the people said, look, we we got your game. This game between reformists and um, hardliners, we are not playing your game anymore, so uh, we will not come and give our votes. But after these elections, um, the COVID-19 patients grow exponentially. The government announced for the first time, yes, we have two COVID-19 patients, and uh, some hours after this, they announced their death. And from this moment on, they announced everyday numbers, but the numbers were too low, and um, even some parliament members said, "No, no, that's not the correct number." But whoever were talking about a fraud and uh, yeah fake numbers and too low numbers uh, were arrested, got arrested. So even um, the deputy minister of health said, while he was sweating in a press conference, that they have everything under control. One day after, Hina announced on Twitter, sorry, right. manye koronishudam, koronishudam, which means um, I got corona. Yeah. And from this moment on, a lot of um, government people, a lot of um, people from the system, even a very close advisor to Ayatollah Khamenei, um, got this disease and died. There's a lot to talk about it, so I can talk about it. Of course, yeah. if, we, if, we, <laughs>
0: if we know that the numbers are fake, or assume that they're coming from the government, do we have a sense of what the actual numbers are? I mean, is it, is it five times what they're saying? Is it You, you mm. know, you look at that map, the Johns Hopkins University map of where, where yeah. all the, the, the cases are and the deaths in the world. Is it 10 times that? Is it? I mean, what are we supposed to believe?
3: Look, in, at the beginning of March, there were delegation, a UN delegation um, of WHO in Iran, and they said after they uh, returned, Um, that the numbers are five times higher. So we still have no reliable numbers on Iran, but the guess of them are, it's five times higher.
0: It must be uh, I mean, I'm sure it's jarring on all kinds of levels for you to return to Munich after being in Tehran for the last few years. But just on this particular point of, of COVID-19, and how well seemingly from the outside, Germany has um, managed this, uh, it must be very interesting for you going from Iran to Germany with respect to the pandemic.
3: It's always uh, interesting to go from Iran to Germany. I'm always appreciating the freedom and the uh um, the the way how our government in Germany is handling everything, because if you compare these two governments, it's uh, like completely the opposite, you know, and that's um, why I'm always telling the people in Germany, look, um, maybe it's not perfect, 100% perfect everything in Germany, but please, Try, uh, the, try starting to understand that we are here in a luxury situation and that we have to appreciate what our government is doing if you compare it to a country like Iran where you cannot trust at all. The mm. people are not trusting the government and the government are not trusting the people. So the whole country is um, a lie.
0: And yet you, you stayed there. For the last few years you 've returned there a number number of times, and I want to get into that and your story because you 're clearly seduced or captivated or interested or or in love with or or, or appreciative of of, your, of the, the country that is half of your um, uh, background as well so uh, but before we get into your story there, i mean there 's no end of questions I want to ask you about the the many years you spent reporting from iran and and living there in a few stints over the last uh, couple of decades. Let me start with this. how does Iran see you as a journalist uh, and I guess a dual citizen? Are you considered an Iranian reporter subject to Iranian laws or a foreign journalist who can be expelled? What do they make of you?
3: look because um, the ARD channel the it's the biggest um, TV um, channel in in Germany and w- Quite powerful and you can compare it to BBC it's even bigger um, in Europe um, I thought that I'm always in a safe position even though that I am a dual citizen and I have two passports. but at the end um, Iran considers me as an Iranian so maybe other journalists and I saw a lot of them um, international journalists were kicked out of the country if they're um, you know not uh, reporting in the way that uh, Iran wants. But in my case, they can threaten me. They can put me into prison. And Germany would not have the right um, to fight for me because they considered me as an Iranian. And that was the risk and that was the um, danger that I had all the time, you know, while I was working. And at the end, it was just um, too risky. And the Foreign Office said, it's a too big danger and they they are thinking that they take me as a as a political hostage and Yeah, they told me not to go to Iran anymore, which I really um, suffer under this condition because I felt like I'm always the voice, you know, of the civil society. And I can, even though I cannot say everything because they would kick me out or bring me into prison, but I can say 80 percent, and that's, that's more than a journalist can say who is not... Aware and you not aware but, of the situation, and not in the country. So, but Natalie, Natalie you, ha- always, you, you, you,
0: you, you um, have yeah. been arrested, right? You've been arrested and interrogated several times yeah. over the years in Iran. What, what yeah, were you they also arrested took my for?
3: Passport and um, forbid me to exit the country uh, for a while. Yes, it was. It was. But you know, um, it's somehow when you're growing up in a free country and then you're telling the stories you know when i'm telling it to my colleagues or to my friends they're Mm -hmm. so oh my god and what happened to you but it's like a daily thing if you're working as a journalist in iran
0: so meaning that I mean I, I what is what do you mean that you're not uh, scared of being arrested? I mean, don't people end up uh, in some cases in Evian, or in some people end up disappearing and dying i mean it it's it's I would think it's even more terrifying no
3: yeah, but i had you know I had two feelings, yes, I'm not a stupid person, so I know I'm aware of the danger, but at the other side, I'm a fighter, and it was always more important for me to be a voice of the oppressed people, than to think about my freedom. Then I could choose to work in another country. But it was my (sighs) choice to work there and to risk this. Yeah, You know, I'm really happy when the people are sending me emails and said, look, we were seeing Iran as a very dark country with, you know, uh, very extremist people, and I was and thanks God that you showed us another picture yes. of the iranians yes. and the sh- and that you showed us a modern society with powerful women, and that was my you know that was my energy push for going on with my work
0: This is a perfect segue because i want to I want to get to uh, what you 've just talked about but but you talk about being a voice that that wanted to be there. Um, let's talk about how you got there because the fact that you're so Iranian in identity and work experience is actually fascinating because you could be, you could have chosen to just be another German kid who happens to have a parent from elsewhere, one parent. Um, Take me back to when you were a little girl, first of all, growing up in Munich. What was your experience like growing up with a German mom and an Iranian father in Germany?
3: If I would describe me my brain is german and my heart is iranian mm-hmm. and um I always wanted to be more iranian than german and my I I'm quite blonde for iranian so I always wanted to look iranian and I wanted to and yeah I colored my hair when I was a teenager black but it uh, didn't fit me so um i always loved iran and i wanted always to be part of iran and when i was three there were in the, the main news in germany pictures from the iran iraq war from the revolution and i was three and i was watching it with my parents and that are not you know that are not pictures that children like and um i just said Okay, I have to pack my stuff. I'm. Ha- I have to go to Iran. Yeah, yeah,
0: you know the the image of you, <laughs> dyeing your hair to try and look more Iranian is going to is going to be quite a <laughs> quite a laugh for a lot of Iranians, as you know, who would give anything <laughs> to have blonde hair, and in fact, do give anything to have blonde hair and, yeah, and yeah. dye their hair. So <laughs> it's 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 an amazing story. Did you did you learn uh, Farsi as a child? Did your dad speak Farsi with you in the house?
3: No. Um, he never spoke with us Farsi, and um, uh, compared to the Turkish people in Germany, which are all av- able to speak um, Turkish, um, the half-Iranians in Germany are really few who are able to speak Farsi, and um, my father, too, he didn't speak with me Farsi. It was something, I don't know, it was something like uh, integration thing, even though he was a carpet seller and there were a lot of Iranians all the time in his shop and so I was growing up with the sound of Farsi but I never were able to speak. Actually I just knew some um, songs like Tupacifidam and these things <laughs> from my mother, from a German mother because she was really in love with Iran and we had a lot of family at our house. Wait, so Wait a minute, up- wait a
0: minute, your mom was teaching you the Farsi songs? That you're German, mom. That's that's. (laughs) So (laughs) so what what? And your where did she learn them? I mean, what was your dad doing when she was teaching you Farsi songs?
3: Look, she was um, growing up in a very um, very small family so there were just three and suddenly he married my father and there were this big big iranian huge family <laughs> and she fell in love with the whole family and the whole family fell in love with my mother so i grew up with no german food at all i was growing up with korma <laughs> Really. I, I, and I'm not able to cook a German food. I'm really just able to cook all these things. But yeah, because my mother felt also in love with Iran, I think the love to this country and to the culture was more transported by my mother to me than through my father.
0: And, you know, there's this story, you tell me if this is true, but that you're, so you're this little blonde girl growing up in Germany, and there's a trip you end up taking, not with your dad, but with your mom and sister to Iran, and that trip has a big impact on you. Tell me about that trip.
3: Yeah, I was three, and my sister was one year old, and my mother said the husband of my cousin died in the war. And my mother had the feeling to be there to support her to be on her side and um, she said okay we are going to iran and it was in the middle of the war and the revolution and i can remember as a child that there were all these gashed air shot and these um, these women with chador and they were yelling at my mother but she ignored them she she just were in love with the family and she thought she had to support my my cousin so she wanted to be there and she was going with her two german very small children to iran to to stay on the side of my my family
0: and what impact did that have on you do you remember
3: the bigger impact that i had on my when I was growing up and I was a teenager and I got my A-level, I was there when I was 17. Yes. And it was quite a while that we didn't go to Iran. So I was like after four or five years the first time in Iran. I got my A-level and I had a group with me, like my history teacher and his, uh, a lot of friends and we were 10. So I was, we were traveling around Tehran and uh, Iran and it was really like positive energy in the country because Khatami was in power. And there were a, a glimpse of hope in the country. And, you, you know, you felt the growing press freedom. You had a lot of newspapers and they really right. there were opposition who I would call opposition, not something like now. So I, I went to Iran. And after two weeks, when we came back to Munich, I said to my father, look, I had a plan to to study business. I never started it because I have to go back to Iran because I'm getting depressed here. I have to go back to Iran. Otherwise, I I don't know, I commit suicide in Munich and I don't want to stay here. So my father just said, oh my God, (laughs) she's a little bit crazy, but (laughs) for God's uh, sake, go. And um, yeah, we bought a ticket and I went back to Iran and I stayed there for six months and then i got more addicted like you know i would i think at this time i was so in love with this country that every guy who was just playing one Gugush song for me, I would say yes to him. <laughs> I was really in love wow. with everything. So <laughs>
0: your father and, must um, have got such a kick out of this or, or found this so interesting that that he, I mean, he obviously left Iran for a, a life in Germany and here's his daughter.
3: Five years ago.
0: Yes. So what 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 would he say to you when you would I mean other than joking around about you know, your divanet or whatever? What are you going? Ha ha, going back there. But what would he really uh, think of this? Uh, his daughter being so enamored of Iran.
3: I don't know. He he was not really taking it serious at the beginning, and um, maybe he had the wish that it's going more normal you know on in my life and maybe he had the wish that i'm you know studying business or medicine and then i got will get a very good Kastegard and then you know we have a perfect wedding and so on and we have a normal safe life in germany the thing is what my father is um right now he is proud of me but he's still all the time scared and he has a lot of stress always when i'm uh, when i went to iran and the whole iran thing is stressing him because he hates religion he hates the this this kind of regime and he hates when people are oppressing human rights and um, he cannot understand it and he cannot even see it what's happening in iran Mm -hmm. and so In all this situation, in the middle of this, he has to see his daughter. So it's quite. Hard for him, but at the other side, he is also sometimes proud. Sometimes because well, he is a <laughs> yes so he says, "When I'm telling too much that you're good, then you become as and you don't have to be." A
0: right, right, right. As my dear old late father would say, "That is great. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is great." But please work harder. You know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> well, I, I you, you could be, yeah. you can understand your your dad's uh, concern, but it leads me to a question that, um, and if you don't mind, as a sidebar from from just telling the story of what you see on the front lines. I'm always so interested in how someone like you, look, I I mean, I've uh, worked in media and journalism for 20 years and and I I have uh, the utmost respect for people who are foreign correspondents or foreign journalists who go out into the field like the way you have because you're making a choice to do that and as a young german girl in your native land you you could have chosen a safer route you could have probably you know i met you you've got the chops you're very good at what you do you could have a successful career on television just sitting in munich uh, for the last uh, 20 years I'm curious about where the urge come, comes from to, to become someone who wants to bear witness to the current events in Iran, in Syria, in Africa. Um, what attracts you to being on the front lines?
3: Because in these countries, I'm not one of a million. I'm, you know, there are not so many people who choose this way, and I can be their important voice. I can do something very useful. And I wanted to do something useful. I wanted to do something with an impact. And um, that's the thing that it's kicking me all the time. You know, it's pushing me. It's like in my blood, I have to go out and maybe a thing that I can talk about in a with a therapist, but
0: it's,
3: <laughs> it's like I am.
0: <laughs> it's hard to establish a, a routine a, a sort of quote unquote normal life this way though and that affects everything right it affects uh, who your partner's going to be it affects who you're how you're going to live uh, yeah. your years all of that i mean there are trade-offs i'm sure
3: yes i choose um the work um part it's hard to establish a family it's hard to find a partner who is accepting all this You're never um, at one point, you know, you're never in one city. You're all the time traveling and you get a call and you have to be all the time aware of the next crisis. And, you know, my mobile and me, we're like connected 24 hours and Mm -hmm. I'm following the news. It's somehow crazy. It's not normal life and a lot of people would hate this. And yes, to be honest, I had the feeling that I'm close to a burnout because, you know, when you're all the time connected with bad things and with, with disasters and with chaos and with crime and with people who are so in an unbelievable bad condition, so that has an impact on you and it's affecting you. And right now, since I had to leave Iran May, 1st of May, and I'm coming a little bit more down, you know, and um, I'm relaxing. So I'm starting right now to dream about all the things that I experienced and that I saw all the pictures because I was like functioning all the time for the last 13 years. And now I'm handling right now all the things um, what I saw
0: sounds like you're in the process of decompressing and processing at the same time, and it's understandable and it's and it sounds like it's a good time for for you to take that um that respite that break if you can you know I have to ask you about this these these stints to Iran. Um, first of all, you, you just talked about being there as a 17-year-old and then wanting to go back there and stay there for a few few months. How do you actually become a, a journalist working there? What, 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 how did you decide to first work and live in Iran? How did that happen?
3: So like I told you, I was not able to speak Farsi. And when I was in Iran, I just um, heard that you can study Oriental Studies focus on Iranian studies in Germany in Bamberg. So I decided when I was in Iran for the six months after my A-Level to go back to Germany to study Iranian science and Islamic science. And then we were really like five people in the at university at these courses because, you know, nobody was interested to study this. <laughs> then 9-11 happened and um, actually it was like booming you know Uh, every course was full of people because somehow it got more um yeah in the focus of interest and um i uh, finished my um, studies and i did my masters in in iranian studies and islamic science And then, in between, I was six months in Iran at Donishkat Tehran and I was six months in Damascus studying Arabic at the university there. So 2005, I finished my studies at the university and I said, okay, what shall I do now? There is no job um, offers in the newspapers for Iran. I just have to go. And then I yeah, packed my stuff and four weeks after I got my degree i arrived in tehran and um yeah i got a um job in the german at the german embassy in the political and press section and i was working there for two years and then the correspondent from ard saw me and we had a lot of um common you know issues because we were helping them to open a studio there and he asked me, "Do you want to be um, our producer?" And actually, when I was like ten or eleven or twelve, my main goal was to become a foreign correspondent, especially a war war correspondent. Wow. So I always wanted to be this, and uh, you know, Christian Amanpour was you know always in front of my eyes, and I wanted to be like her. So. Um, Yes, I switched um, to ARD, and um, then uh, 2009 happened, the Green Movement, the Green Revolution, with uh, Mousavi and Karubi and Rahnavart and all of them, and um, I became a journalist.
0: It's quite an, an incredible story that you almost happen into this, but that it was your dream. Uh, you get your dream yeah. job by by a strange obstacle course of events, rather than um, uh, a linear path for journalism. Not a master plan. Right, right. But yeah. so you're there for the green movement uh, and those horrible, that disputed election of of 2009. You end up leaving after that. Tell me why you were leaving, and and set the scene if you can from your perspective at that time when Ahmed Dinajad comes into office for a second time. Tell us what you saw during the Green Movement and why you end up leaving.
3: Look, when the elections were happening in 2009, um, we were so exhausted um, at the election day that we just wanted to go to bed and sleep for weeks because it was such a great atmosphere that the whole election period we were every day out we were shooting the people they were happy they were you know um i i remember there were this um people chain from tajish the whole balias yes, like 17 kilometers full of young people celebrating that there will be a change and there will be reforms and they were celebrating musavi and Rahnavart, his wife and It was such an euphoric situation and atmosphere in Iran. So we were all the time working, 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 and at the end, um, the election day happened, and everybody said, yes, we won, and Mousavi will win, and we just wanted to fall into our beds and sleep. And then we got a call from the office of Mousavi, and they were calling every journalist who were in in the city. And there were a lot of journalists, BBC, CNN, NBC, everybody was there because they they got invited because of the election to cover the election. Nobody knew what will happen. And then they said, come to our office. There is happening a fraud. Something is going on. They will fake the election results, and we have to tell you the truth. So we all gathered there and they were like, I don't know, 200 journalists? I was, and you know, next to me who were standing? Uh, Christian Amanpour. So, and we were just packed. We couldn't breathe anymore because it was so full of journalists. And Musavi come and telling us there is happening a fraud. They faked the election. Please be aware. From tomorrow on, we will have something going on but we will not accept the results right. and from this day on it was like a movie it was like a thriller and my 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 chief said to me look i'm now working for 30 years as a correspondent i was working in israel i was working in turkey i was working everywhere but this thing what you will experience now is a historical event and it was historical you know there were people coming out and we were every day out covering the news and they uh, i i just saw these amazing women they were just covered by green scarves and they were just protesting and they were coming to the streets and say give me give us our vote back and they were so brave and so strong and i saw the besieged militias and they were coming with tear gas and they were coming with knives and they were coming with all these weapons and still the people went to the streets and were fighting for their votes and it took like weeks and there were like hundreds of thousands of people but at the end to to make it short they uh, they failed they failed to get their vote back Ahmadinejad was the second uh, was again the president of the country, and um, Khamenei said, "From now on, everybody who is on the street will get killed." In paradise. he didn't say it like this, but he meant it, and everybody knew it. So, um, so from 2010 on, there were a whole depression uh, over the country. The whole opposition left the country or oh, were um, imprisoned, and um, After after a while, I couldn't stand it anymore because there was so much hope and the the people were so sure about to win. And then everybody was leaving. I had no person anymore for an interview. Nobody was able to talk to me because either they were in prison or they left the country or the government, the regime forbid them to talk. So it was just not possible to work as a journalist anymore. And I was there for six years and I thought, OK, that's it. I'm leaving the country. That was 2011.
0: It's heartbreaking, really, uh, you know that uh, you do, however, return to Iran in 2015 uh, when Iran reaches the n- nuclear proliferation agreement. Um. Mm-hmm. There's obviously different schools of thoughts on this. And uh, how do you think the nuclear deal would have impacted Iran? Do you think, I mean, it seemed to have been doing its work for the two years before it was, or the the years before it was scuttled by Trump. Do, Do you think this deal would be capable of improving the human rights situation in Iran, for example, by giving Rouhani leverage? Do you think that it, it, that the path had been created there before what we see in the last few years?
3: I have to commit, yes. Um, everybody was thinking this, even the population in Iran, even the Iranians were thinking, yes, we give our vote to Rouhani because he promised us um, to improve our situation, not only the economical situation. They said, we. W- he said, I, I promise you to improve the political freedom to improve the human rights. I improved the whole situation step by step. And the people believed him. When the JCPOA um, happened 2015, I took over the the bureau as a chief in Tehran, and there were again this hope in the country. And everybody was um, really euphoric about the situation. And they said, Yes, uh, so many people were coming back from abroad um, to to be part of this new era, to be part of this new beginning in the country. And they really thought that they will be a new start. And um, a lot of delegations were coming. You know, I was um, for so many years in Iran, maybe an, all the years I saw two or three German delegations. But... 2015 there were per week three delegations from germany there Mm. who were interested to do business with iranians because it was suddenly a free market you know a free you know a free business market um, and it was a good chance for a lot of companies to invest in this country because they knew there is a lot of money and they need a lot of things there is um, no big business companies it was very yeah again it was a very positive atmosphere the people were really hopeful that something will happen to, towards a better future for all of them
0: uh, you know i i Natalie, i have to ask you you i is it true that you were the only foreign journalist stationed in iran for many of these years and if that's true uh what was it like carrying the torch when so many others are not able to report from the ground there? that would feel like a lot of responsibility,
3: yeah, and a lot of pressure because um if you're the only person in front of Iveen prison and you're saying there are prisoners inside political prisoners um yeah you you they 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 will catch you and bring you also to into prison so when if you're saying in front of the camera broadcasting it that there are protesters on the street and um, saying Mark Bad Khamenei and that to the dictator and um regime change. Um yes it's very it's very really big responsibility um well also also because also because owned, you want to get the story yeah. right
0: right because you're feeding a narrative that um you're creating a pipeline of information for those of us in in the west or outside of iran that it, it has a lot of weight to it because there isn't you know a thousand j- foreign journalists working in iran mm. yeah
3: yeah yeah. It, it it is like this yeah i was Um, Sometimes I was not all the time the only journalist. I was the only female journalist who was all the time there permanently. So there were coming and going people. But you know, when you're a foreign journalist and you're just getting after months of visa for two weeks, you will not say some critical stuff. Um, So you're happy if you see Isfahan, and you see Yaz, then you make some good pictures, and then you go to the Grand Bazaar, and then you're leaving the country, and so on. But if you're there when when the things are happening, like the protests, which were um, over the whole country, 2017, 18, um, I was, yes, I was the only foreign journalist reporting about these um, protests. But at the same time, it's very hard because you know, it was New Year's Eve, so um, the all the newspapers and so on were working from the 4th or 5th of January and they they stopped the protests, you know, with tear gas and all the things. And then everybody started to write about it abroad. And then I was staying in Tehran saying, sorry, but the protests are over. The people didn't have the chance because Basij and Sepaw was were again on the streets and... They just crippled um, them. And um, then you're also facing attacks from outside because they say, you're, you're just saying what the Islamic Republic wants. Mm-hmm. And do you understand what I say? It's like it's over because you can't win. people <laughs> didn't win <laughs> yeah. the fight. Right. But uh, I just can't report what's the truth. Right. There is nobody on the streets anymore. Sorry that you're coming back from your holidays over New Year's Eve, but the people were struggling in the days before mm. and fighting on the streets. But it's over now. So it's, very, it's a very short time that the people in Iran have the chance to go to the streets because it's a perfectly organized um, system to repress the people and to stop the protests. They have a perfect system, and they pick everybody after the protest out and they knew everybody who was there and then they start with the secret service to threat you
0: well speaking of repressing the protests tell me about the protests last year November 2019 after the sudden rise in gas prices when the internet was shut down protesters end up being shot in the streets I mean this was terrifying and enraging to see from afar was your ability to report from Iran at that time paralyzed or compromised due to problems of access and security? How much information could you get out and what did you see?
3: Mm. That was a new level of of crime of the Iranian regime. They were just shooting into the people, like they were just killing the people. You know, when we had um, Neda, or Sultan, 2009 she was a very famous death person yes but we had hundreds of nida of a sultan 2019 in november and it's like they crossed a red line and you know for every other protest which will happen they will do the same so it was a warning it was a warning for the protesters And it was at the same time awarding for the regime that the protesters will not be silent anymore and will just shout. They will also take a weapon into their hands because they started damaging everything, you know, like police stations, banks, and so on. So I think the next protests will be much more bloody and much more brutal um, than we ever saw before.
0: You know, I'm glad you just said what you said because... um, before I ask this question, you know, no one can accuse you uh, based on the last 45 minutes and based on what you just said of being pro-regime or or going too <laughs> softly on them. But with that said, uh, do you think Iran is portrayed fairly in an international media? I mean, there are some who argue that while things are clearly bad in Iran— that journalists tend to only focus on pinpointing the shortcomings of the government, the regime, the actions of the politicians and spend less time reporting positive elements or offering solutions or just exploring the culture on the ground. How do you feel about that? Where do you come down on this question?
3: Look, there is Iran with a civil society with people who are having feelings, who are extremely polite, which I love, which I really, uh, Admire for their strength and power and, and cleverness, and there is an Iran with with ayatollahs and with uh, death threats towards Israel and with an atomic uh, um, with a nuclear program and with um, rockets uh, in Lebanon towards Israel and with um, supporting Hezbollah and she, she militias. In Iraq and in Syria, there are two sides of this country, and um, it's very complex. The whole country, uh, Iran, is not explained in an easy. You cannot explain Iran in five minutes. You have to talk weeks, you know. And in the news, you have sometimes just time for one thirty, so one minute and thirty seconds, a news uh, clip, and in these one minute and something, you cannot explain Iran. So then you have a president like Ahmadinejad who is saying stupid things and the news are working like this, that you have to say what he said. So half of the story is over. And you didn't explain what does this mean? What is between the lines? What the people are thinking? Because your time is over. So it's very hard to give a 100% picture of the country. Because it's just too complicated. The whole situation, the whole right. political situation is too complicated. Iran and the regime is not one group. They are right now having a really strong power fight um, between different groups, and they're eliminating each uh, against each other, you know, and they're fighting against each other. But from outside, you think, okay, there's is an Islamic Republic one regime and their uh, unity. It's not like this, it's much more complicated.
0: I don't want to question your professionalism. but Is it ever hard for you to maintain a sense of objectivity or arms length because you have an Iranian background? In other words, can you, can Natalie report on the, the, the atrocity of the shooting of the Ukrainian flight 752, say, in the same way as you would about a similar incident in Syria or poverty in Africa or starvation in Yemen?
3: that's my aim that's um, that's my profession I have to be professional and sometimes when I'm very um, not neutral and when I'm very objective on issues um, Iranians who are work- you who are living outside right. um, accusing me of being objective and they are saying why you are not saying death to the dictator but i'm a journalist i have to say what is going on i don't have to mix it up with my opinion yes when we are now talking i can tell you my opinion but not when i'm doing the news but i can give people in iran the chance to say something to the world but it's not my job to take my scarf down to be a hero for four days And on the fifth day, everybody forgot me, just not the Islamic Republic, and they will not give me a permission to work anymore. So I cannot be an activist in Iran. I have to be a journalist. And that's a thing that some people are mixing up. You know, as a journalist, you have to be objective. What's going on in my heart when I'm talking about this and about the oppression in Iran, about the fight of the women, Yes, my heart is crying all the time, but I have to be professional and I cannot cry in front of the camera.
0: You're back in Germany now. What do you feel is, what do you feel is the most underreported story when it comes to Iran today, or Iranians, including those in the diaspora? Is there something that, uh, in, in is there is there one that got away, or is there a story that you think um, should be covered?
3: Look, the civil society is living a, a life which the Islamic Republic don't want to seem broadcasted, but they're having a life like us. So these these pictures from parties, from, from happiness, from friendship, from poker nights, from vodka drinking, all these pictures who are not allowed to shoot and to film, and if you would shoot it and you would film it, you would um, bring the people into a dangerous situation because you know they got they will get problems so this other side from iran the real side which i say um, i would so much love to do to show more of this side of the iranians and another thing is what i really always wanted to show is the similarity between the two populations and societies between Israel and Iran. If you party with people in Tel Aviv, it's Mm. the same kind of party like in Tehran. (laughs) And if you look into the eyes of the fanatics, even in Rome or in Jerusalem, it's the same stupidity that you say. So I think Israel and Iran are really could be really close friends. And I'm really sad about this uh, thing what the politicians in both countries are doing. They're abusing the people because I think the people could be uh, really good friends because they're really similar in their characters and mentality.
0: You know, uh, I don't even know if you know this, but the the most recent episode of Rook we have uh, uh, a woman named Orly Noy was on, who uh, is an Iranian who lives in Israel and um, was the first person to uh, translate some of the contemporary works of uh, Iranian literature into Hebrew, like uh, Dajjo Napalon, You know, uh, and, oh, wow. and 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 so and she was saying almost the exact same thing in terms of the really? intertwining yeah, of look, the cultures. Really? Yeah. Look,
3: I didn't listen it to, to yes, this yes, we'll but, have to we'll send, yeah, send you it's, that. Yeah. It's,
0: uh, listen, I'm very grateful for the time you've given us. I, I won't keep you forever. I just have a couple more questions. You, you, you Um, uh, I want to return to this question of how you see your identity now. Earlier, you, you kind of jokingly said, although I'm sure you've uh, said it before, that your mind is German, your heart is Iranian. Uh, h- how much do you um, navigate those two worlds? In other words, when you've just spent like, these few years in Iran and you returned to Munich last month, did it feel like coming home? At the end of the day can do, can you pick or do you as uh, Dr. Marisaza uh, Burujerdi said on this program a couple of months ago um why do we choose to be one dimensional we can celebrate the duality in ourselves and be belong to more than one culture uh how how do you feel
3: Yeah actually I was um I had an interview with uh, also half half Iranian um journalist and she said to me yeah look i am never seen myself as a whole, you know, as a complete person. So I'm always half-half. And um, I'm never depending to one of these side. And um, I see it in another way. I see it more positive. And I have the feeling that I don't have a complex because I'm half-half. I, I'm very happy because of this. It's like a present. It's like, you know, I got as a present, two cultures. Hmm. So I have two countries, I have two languages, I have uh, two families, and um, it's a gift. It's I like it. I, I love it. I, um, I'm happy that I can cook for my guests Iranian food, and I'm mm-hmm. happy that I have an Iranian heart and a an German brain and this <laughs> kind of... Combination in myself.
0: I love what you said. You said it very beautifully. Your English is just fine, it's perfect. They-
3: <laughs> because I'm, um, you know, I know that you speak Farsi and. I want to switch to Farsi all the time and that's, you know, too much for my brain right now. But okay, I, I hope that everybody understands.
0: Well, apparently you could switch to all kinds of languages that you speak cause the impressive <laughs> dossier that is Natalie Amiri. Listen, one final question. The, the list of places that you have traveled to, lived in, reported from is so impressive and so immense, including a lot of conflict zones as, we, as we've discussed, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan. What would you say is something that you've learned about life or the world?
3: I have yeah. to be so grateful to live in a free country every minute. You know, we have all to wear masks now, and we have this shutdown. But the government is not doing it why, because they want to oppress us. They're just thinking about our health. And I'm just appreciating what we have here. And some people forget what we have to enjoy every day, because to live in a country where you don't have freedom and where you have to fear every day that somebody is knocking on your door, is taking your children away, and you don't know where they bring your children, and maybe they get killed, and you don't have the opportunity to take a lawyer and to fight for them, and you don't have any rights, it's like... It's like the hell. And when you experience this for so many years, and you have the chance to go out of this country, you have just to enjoy life every minute and thank God that you're having this luck to be in such a condition.
0: Natalie Amiri, I really appreciate this today, truly. Thank you so much for this.
3: You're very welcome. Chodafis. Goodbye. Khudaafiz. Good
0: Natalie Amiri is an award-winning German-Iranian journalist. She joined us from Munich, Germany today. Hey,
2: the desert, when you're in the afternoon, In the rainy
1: city, you'll be in
2: the afternoon. The night <laughs> افتاب به آزادی از او چشم تو خنده ای شرقی قمگین تو مثل کوه نوری نظر خوشی دلون بمیره تو مثل روز مثل دریا مغروری نظر خاموشی جون بگیره
0: Little Taste of Sha'a Giyak by Feredun Faragzad I see what you did there, Shaya (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there because that's uh, Hossein Mansouri who's in Munich, right? In Munich uh, which is in concert with uh, Natalie who we're just speaking to and who's the female voice we're hearing there?
2: Uh, she's Shadi. Shadi Youssefian
0: from the band Indo. Oh, that's Shadi Yousafian. Okay, and so she's in San Francisco. Yes. Where?
1: Um, Ahad Kira. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Munich to San Francisco, yes. exactly where the yes. show is going. Nice choice. Well done, Shaya. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, if you have any thoughts or comments on that interview with Natalie Amiri that we just did uh, in Munich, uh, info at rookmedia.com info at rookmedia.com or depending on what platform you're listening to us right now on YouTube or on Instagram or on, uh, SoundCloud, uh, uh you can leave us a comment there, post a comment on our Facebook, uh, or on our Twitter feed, Um, At Rook Media is the universal thing to remember. And on any of those platforms, you can subscribe for free. And we really like it when you do. So depending on where you catch us, you can subscribe there. Well, it can never be easy being the progeny of a well-known or successful person. You're following the footsteps of someone who's done impressive things and you will feel the pressure that inevitably comes with that celebrated last name or legacy of fine work. But surely the heat is turned up a bit if your dad is arguably the most famous filmmaker ever from Iran and an icon who pretty much defines a genre. Indeed, being the son of Abbas Kiarostami can come with expectations and challenges, but Ahmad Kiarostami. Has done a fine job of carving out his own path. Ahmad actually studied math and computer science at Sharif University in Iran and before moving to the United States in 2001 he took a leadership role at Microsoft Middle East and founded three companies including Negah, the first multimedia and online production venue in Iran. In 2007 Ahmad was chosen as a young leader at the Asia Society's 21 Young Leaders Summit. He has served on the boards of the San Francisco Cinematheque and the Roxy, the oldest operating cinema in North America. And in 2014, Ahmad started DocuNight, an initiative to screen Iranian documentaries on a monthly event basis, often in over 20 cities in North America. In 2016, Ahmad became a fellow at the Aspen Institute, an international nonprofit think tank based in Washington, D.C. He co produced Coup 53, a featured documentary, as well as Feathers of Fire, a visually breathtaking cinematic shadow play inspired by the Shahnameh or Book of Kings, a production we have discussed at length on this program. And he's also created some of the most viewed Iranian music videos on YouTube. Most recently, Ahmad Kiarostami is the co-founder and CEO of Quantum, a platform to teach science to elementary school students in the United States. And Ahmad Kiarostami joins me from San Francisco today. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm I'm very happy to get to talk to you and have you on the program. I I, I should say we're hearing... A lot about another rise in COVID cases in California. I'm sure it's been a, a tough time for you with respect to your cinema series and events, but I, I hope you've been okay through all of that.
4: Um. Yes, you know, uh, my job, my main job is computer. So I've been, I've been enjoying, if I may, if, if I wasn't for the, all, all the difficulties that people are going through, I've been enjoying sitting at home by my computer and working. And actually, because we had to stop the screenings we launched an online version a streaming version of Doc Unite, um which is now available online people can go and watch iranian documentaries it's kind of like a mini 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 netflix i'm gonna get to that you can watch at home and watch the films
0: i love it persian netflix um let let me first though i i mean there's so much to get to with you i i, I feel like i would be Remiss, and, and indeed, I would feel disrespectful if I did not start with your father, Abbas Kiarostami, because later this week um, will mark the fourth anniversary of his passing. Uh, last week would have been his 80th birthday. Um, and Ahmed, last week on the occasion of that birthday, you donated all of his awards, and there are many, to the Museum of Cinema in Iran. Can you tell us about making that decision?
4: Um, yes, so the, the first part of the decision was made by my father himself. He gave uh, some of his uh, awards to the, uh, to the museum, including the Cannes Award, which is the, the most important one. But he had a small, relatively small section in the museum, and after his passing, we are thinking what we should do uh, with, um, with his work and stuff. And um, these awards they've been seeing at his home for almost four years now collecting dust and i thought it would be a good thing to give it to the museum to sit next to the other ones for people to see so we gave about 50 or 60 different awards that we that was at home we gave it to the museum and they were very kind they expanded the section and included all all those awards um in the section that they have for my father
0: you know when I heard about this, you doing this, um, I immediately thought of, I mean, your dad was famously, of course, awarded the Akira Kurosawa Prize for Lifetime Achievement and in Directing in, in 2000, and he generously gave the award away on stage to Beres Vosiri, yes. whom he wanted to honor. What, um, what was your dad's relationship towards being celebrated or winning awards? Was he uncomfortable with that kind of recognition?
4: That's a good question. I I would say he went through phases. So at the beginning, it was very exciting. But then at some point, he said that uh, the attention to his name has become bigger than the attention to his films, Hmm. which he thought was wrong. Uh, So, And I think that he never said this publicly, and this is my own thought, but I think he didn't want to think about winning or not winning awards either. So at some point, he announced that he would not... Participate in any competition in any festival any, anymore, which took about I don't know how long exactly, about seven, eight, ten years, and then he changed his mind again and uh, participated in, hmm. in competition. And when they asked him about that, he said, "Only fools don't change their mind." <laughs> uh, so, so he had that back and forth. But in general, he he didn't make he didn't care that much about about, about prizes. I remember that he. Once he was a part of the jury at Cannes Film Festival. And, um, you know, they treat you like kings there, if you're a jury there. And he was shooting a film. He had to stop the shooting, go to Cannes for 10 days, and then go back to the shooting. And the, the shooting was in a remote village in a very difficult situation. He didn't even have a bed there. And he said, going from this to that and coming back to this, that's the only way that I can keep the balance, because life is neither that, nor this or right. something in between
0: it's so interesting because it is a kind of a double edged sword i mean if i uh, having never had the occasion unfortunately to meet your your late father if i if i i would assume that he wouldn't uh, I mean, he certainly wouldn't be the kind of guy based on watching his films or the ones he, he produced uh, or wrote the screenplays for. He he did not make art for the sake of winning awards or, or even making money. But on the other hand, as you know, you know and he would know uh, throughout his career, winning these awards can be the difference between getting distribution or getting world recognition for a film and not. So it is, I guess, a double-edged sword, huh?
4: Of course, of course. And you know, he he did the same thing forever he had the same approach to cinema and for the first i don't know 10 15 20 years um, many people criticized his way of doing cinema they said this is not even cinema and he kept doing the same thing that he believed in so so that's another reason to show that he really didn't care about the things that others said but only did what he believed in and at some point people accepted him what did they mean by that this isn't cinema what were they referring to um, it's a longer story, but the, the funny part is, there's a funny story about the very first film that he did, The Bread and Alley. Um, you know, this was the first film that he was doing. He had made several uh, TV commercials before then, but this was the first film. Um, and there's a shot in the film that the boy, there's a boy, uh, and a little dog and the boy goes inside his home and shuts the door and the dog's supposed to sit there behind the door. Mm-hmm. And they shot the film, the whole film, I don't know. I don't know the exact numbers, but for in a week. And it took them a couple of weeks or more to shoot that one scene. And the reason was my father didn't want to cut. He wanted to um, have everything in one shot that the kid goes in, closes the door, and the dog sits down. And of course, the dog was not a professional actor, so uh, he wouldn't listen. he had an argument with the with the DP, with the director of photography, and he told him that you don't know cinema. In cinema, we have something called editing. You can cut. <laughs> you can cut that scene to this one, which is eventually what they did at the end. And many years later, he said, you know, I didn't know cinema. And it took me years to realize that he was right. And it took me many more years to realize that I, I was right because I didn't have to follow any rules. I was doing things my own way, and I didn't have to follow that rule. And if I wanted to do it that way, if the feeling was right to me, I had to do it my way. Hmm. Um, so many things that he did, like long until the like, even when he did Taste of Cherry, all these very long car shots with nothing happening. Yes, sometimes just a, a dialogue, things like that. People said this is not real cinema. Some people said, criticized him. But again, he did things his own way, and at some point people accepted it and started appreciating it.
0: Only a fool doesn't change his mind. <laughs> True. <laughs> Let, let, let's come back to your dad specifically. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it is hard to tell your story without referencing him as he is such an iconic figure in the world and in your life. But um, take me back to your earliest memories growing up in Iran. You, you talked about your dad saying the attention to his name, his name had become bigger than, than the films. When did you realize that you had been born into a family with a famous last name?
4: Mm, so when, when I was born, his last name was not famous. Uh, actually, I am... Exactly the same age as his first film. He made his first film in 1970. I was born in 1971. But uh, I was three years old. Um, he got a prize at a festival and he was on TV and they called him Abboskiyarus and I heard it and I, for some reason, I liked it. And after that, I started calling him "A Lami Jun because that's, that's the name that I heard on TV. Right. So I think if I want to ask you a question, it goes back to then. But then I didn't really realize that until maybe I was in high school. Um, and then when you were in high school, say, are
0: people pointing at you and going whispering? And that's the asking, kid of So
4: the question that I got the receiving was Are you related to that Kyarostami? <laughs> right. um, at the beginning, it was interesting. Uh, but then it became very difficult to be honest with, you. especially in that age, because you want you want to prove yourself right. you want to see yeah. I am a man of my own. I, I can do things i 'm not son of somebody i'm like me and um, it became very, very difficult and I was eighteen when I seriously considered changing my last name. Huh. Um, I even got the forms and everything, but then I thought this would send a message that is not my intention right. Uh, and the very last moment I decided I'm not going to do it, but I had that problem until I was 20, I don't know, six, seven, maybe it was difficult. And then something very stupid and random happened and the whole thing went away from me. Um, one night my father called me at two, three AM. Um, and I, first I thought something, something bad had happened and I said, "What, what, what's going on? And I said, I just came back from a party and I had to call you and tell you something. I said, what? He said, I was at a party. Um, let, let me go back a little bit. Um, during the high school, I worked in cinema. I worked with different directors, yes. Bahrain Bezoy, Nasir, Hawaii, all those guys. But then when I finished my high school, I thought I didn't want to stay in cinema because I didn't want to stay under my father's shadow. So I completely changed my my path. I studied math and computer science and went to the engineering direction. So that night, my father called me. And said, uh, "I went to this party, and sorry, you're, you're still in, introduced you're, you're, me. you're still in Iran yes. at this point, huh? Yes, I'm in Iran. I, yeah, I left Iran when I was 30. Okay yeah. so I was maybe 26 or 27. And he called me and said, uh, "So I went to this party, and um, there was a guy there. they introduced me and said, "Mr Kiromi." And he looked at me and said, "Are you related to that?" Kiarostami guy in computers. <laughs> so the guy didn't know my father, but had heard my name. And I think he was somebody who lived in America and had no idea about the, the cinema or any of that. But, right. But he didn't know my father. So we laughed at this at 2, 3 a.m. And I hung up. And a, probably a month later, I realized that it was not a problem anymore. Because I think that stupid, very, very stupid event in my subconscious proved to me that OK, I, I did something on my own.
1: Hmm.
0: That's an amazing story. When, I mean, I mean you, you wouldn't have been the first kid of a very, very, very famous uh, um, parents to want to change their name. Uh, did, you, did, you, did you have an idea of what name you would change it to? I mean, Scorsese, <laughs> Coppola?
4: No. No, I didn't. But I can tell you that when I released my first music video, yes. um was ad. You know my father was a filmmaker my brother um was a documentary filmmaker and you know there were there were others other families in cinema that the whole family were doing cinema and I just didn't want to be part of that you know the family thing and I thought I'm going to release this under a different name uh so I had to pick a name for myself and I thought um the son of Rostam was Sohrab yes so, and I, instead of Kyo Rustami, I, I picked Kiyo as my first name, and I put my last name as Sohrabi. Sohrab was the son of Rostam. Uh So I released it under Kyo Sohrabi, but then I had edited that video on my brother's computer, and they confiscated his computer from his office a couple of months later, and they thought that he had made the video, and I, I announced that, that I did it and after that I released my video the cover was blown name. yeah
0: <laughs> wow well and here you are uh, a couple of decades later being still
4: asked about your last day and with your and your father so it's not something oh. that you can escape but but let me tell you, for the last 4 years i've been traveling around the world just standing there on as a placeholder for my father yes. and i've been on the I, I was stupid enough to think i can escape his, his shadow i don't even try anymore
0: and, and, and you know, why would you? Why would you want to? I mean, at, at this point, once <laughs> you've carved amazing. out your own legacy, you, you can you can take such pride in it. The thing is, that it's interesting, your story, because um, when you talk about realizing that you don't want to escape from under the uh, Zita Saye, your your father, from under the shadow of your father and the, and the great name and all of that, um, one would think that at that point, you would decide to stay in Iran. I mean, you had become, as you say, this renowned director in your own right. Um, and significantly, you'd become this successful founder of numerous startups. In fact, you were, you were one of the pioneers of successful startups in Iran. Your company was the first startup to be sold in Iran. So it seems like you'd be primed for a very prominent and prosperous life in your home country. What made you decide to immigrate to the United States?
4: That's a very good question, and I don't have a a straightforward answer to it. There were many things that happened, you know, and I had no plan to stay here, to move to America. I came here to visit. Um, There was not a single thing that happened. But first of all, being my father's son, I didn't have any problem with it anymore, but I was not interested in using it in any way either. Mm -hmm. Um, So that didn't make any difference. And then from what I was doing, like you said, because there were not many people doing startups and and companies back then. This is in nineteen ninety six, seven. In Iran, there were very few startups. Uh, We became relatively successful. And at some point I thought I have reached, I don't want to say the top, but the point that there's not a lot of room to learn and grow anymore. Mm. Um, That was one part of it. The other one was a very strange uh, experience that I had in the last months. There was a bidding for a system for a company that belonged to one of the ministries. And we submitted an application and they called me and they said, you've won this bidding and we're just gonna come there for an in-person interview. The guy came to my office and basically he said, you have to increase the amount that you have sent us and then from that much, this part of it goes to that guy, this part goes to that guy, this part goes to me, and you get extra several million dollars. And I I was very much offended, and I said, I'm not going to do it. And he, he, told, he literally told me, are you stupid? And I got very upset, and I asked him to leave my company. And we never got the job. And uh, that was a very, very disappointing experience. And then I have a friend, Godfrey Cheshire. He was the... Chair of New York Film Critic in 1999, in New York. He came to Iran several times, and the last couple of times he stayed with me. And he always told me that, hey, you have to come and visit New York, and I didn't want to do it. You know, there was this ego thing, I didn't want to go apply for a visa and not get it. And then in 2000, at the end of 2000, my father was coming to America for a couple of film festivals, and he emailed me again, and he said, your dad is coming here, why don't you come and visit the U.S.? And there was a, you know, in Iran for Nowruz we have uh, about more than two weeks of vacation. And then that year we had Ashura, tasua and Arba'in. So the whole country was on vacation for a month and a half. And I wanted to do something with that time. And I thought, maybe I do it. And then um, next week he emailed me and he said, you're going to receive a recommendation letter from a senator. And I had no idea about the senators in the U.S. The, or even the system. I knew nothing about it. Um, but he explained who he was. I didn't even remember. There was a guy back then who had lived in America. I told him that I, I guess I'm going to America and said, how are you going to go there? How Are we going to get a visa? I said, I'm receiving a recommendation letter from a senator. He said, which senator? I said, I don't remember his name, but the email said he's the chairman of Foreign Relations Comedy. <laughs> I said, you're not talking about Jesse Helms. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, his name was Jesse Helms. He said, you're kidding me. That's impossible. I said, why? He said he was the, he's the most redneck person in <laughs> it's the a whole real, super government. right wing, yeah. yeah. I said, he's a redneck, but I said, my friend is gay. <laughs> I said, Jesse Helms giving the recommendation letter to a gay guy 21." <laughs> and That's absolutely impossible. Next day, I received a fax from Jesse Helms' office, and I still have it. So with that, I got my visa. I came here. The second day I was here, I met a friend of a friend. And we talked, and we hit it off, and he said, why don't you stay here, and we start a company together. And I said, no, I want to go back to Iran. I was actually in New York. I saw my father there, and I told him about this. And he said, you should consider staying. It would be a very good experience for you. And then a a week later, I thought, maybe I should. And I called the guy. I asked if he still has his offer. And he said, yes. And I stayed. So it it just, I'm sorry, that was a very, very long answer to your question. But it only happened by by chance, I had no decision to move to America.
0: The uptake for me is that um, all the great work you've done bringing Iranian documentaries to Western eyes or uh, helping to run the Roxy or whatever. We have Jesse Helms to thank for that. <laughs> Senator Jesse Helms <laughs> is responsible for the infusion of Iranian please, culture, a, which is quite ironic. Uh, you know, I have i had heard, I don't know if this is true, you can correct me if I if this is absolutely way off base, but I i, I remember I had heard or I had read somewhere that your dad was, was actually one of those who was a proponent of Iranian talent staying in Iran. So, what 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 did you make of his um, his ratification, his uh, blessing for you to
4: come to America? Um, you know, he he talked about different things. Um, it wasn't a black and white situation. He talked. He specifically said about his generation. He said when we go at a at a An older age, um, it's very difficult to have, to find roots in the country. Uh, And he he specifically talked about, he said, when I see my colleagues who left Iran, they went there and they're all struggling, and they never, almost none of them did a good job, you know, created something. But he said for the newer generation, it's different. Uh, Their needs are different, their situation is different. He said, when I was... Young uh, with with uh, normal work, he said. I, and this is true that even after a couple of months of working, he bought an almost brand new Peugeot. Hmm. Uh, this is something that young people in Iran cannot even dream of. Hmm. Um, so he said. He said it. He he mentioned that the situation has changed and young people have different needs and and of course they should they should consider that. You
0: know. So you come to the United States and you. You really make your bread and butter creating, incubating, selling tech startup businesses, startups. Uh, and this, the latest project I mentioned to to give you props is called uh, a quantum uh, a platform for teaching science to elementary school kids. I mean, without getting into the weeds of these particular startups, why have startups been such a part of your journey? I mean, other than the, other than the fact that they've obviously been lucrative for you, what what do you get out of creating these? Things Or help or the entrepreneurial side of you, I should put it
4: um exactly what you said, creating something, and I think the whole process of creation is a very uh pleasant, very, very pleasant experience, um, no matter what you do, what if you get to create something, you're lucky um, but these days, I'm doing less and less you know, after my father passed away um since he passed away, I've been more involved with nonprofits taking care of his stuff, finishing his last film, and all those things. So I've been less involved in startup, and I sometimes I miss it, to be honest with you.
0: I want to get to some of the projects you've been involved in, uh, with, but I, I want to say that a lot of them, Ahmed, they intersect with the promotion, celebration, or exploration of, of Iranianism, if I can call it that, in the diaspora. It seems like much of what you do related to art, culture film is often made by Iranians uh, or about Iranians, your work with, say, Feathers of Fire and the Shahnameh Project, uh, and you've made a number of music videos with Iranian artists, one of which was the most viewed video of the day on YouTube on the day it was posted. How important is it for you to want to bring Iranian stories and history to Western audiences or to other Iranians, I should say, outside of Iran? How much does that drive what you do?
4: Um, I'm not doing it out of importance, to be honest with you. It's not because I, I'm i a nationalist or anything like that, and I know some people would not like to hear that, but it's not because of that. I think Iran is just like any other country, um, like Turkey, like China, like Russia, like France, whatever. Um, but the thing is, I know that part of the world better, and I know those people better, and I know that art better. So I have something to say there, and I have more connections. Um, But I equally enjoy the art from anywhere else, to be honest. Um, So what you're saying is not because I wanna specifically promote Iranians or Iranianness. You don't see yourself as
0: some kind of ambassador of Iranian culture.
4: Yeah, I I don't wanna call myself that Mm. at all. Um, I think that's, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. There, There are interesting things everywhere in the world. And I happen to know that part of the world, so I'm a better candidate to to talk and um, show that and maybe and I know more people there, so it's easier to help to get involved with them. but I also did a music video for a French band, which my father thought was my best video, but it's the least viewed music <laughs> video that I've ever done um, it's I, I don't have I don't feel I have a mission to to promote Iran or Iranians or anything like that. It just happens that I know that more.
0: So what about DocuNight? This is the the program that takes place in more than 20 cities in North America at times, which screens Mm -hmm. documentaries about Iran or from Iranians or that have been made by Iranians. Why the desire to show Iranian documentaries to the world?
4: So that came after two completely separate things that happened to me. The first one was the election, that um, the famous election of Ahmadinejad in Iran. And I caught myself having a lot of opinion about what was going on there um, without being there for for eight years back then. And I thought about it long and hard, that what's the best way of educating myself about about what's going on in in Iran. You know, there are different news media uh, from all sides that they only tell you at the best case, if they don't take sides, they just tell you the newsworthy part of the news, of what's happening. But life is a lot more than that. And we have covered many different aspects of, of life in Iran in the past six years in Doc Unite, from from media to something completely political to Rafsanjani's daughter to Basij to something completely irrelevant to politics. Um, so we covered all of that. And I think if you look at it as a big picture, that's what's going on in Iran. And I do it to educate myself to begin with. and um, And also I thought, people here, they try to either condemn Iran and what's going on there and the government and all that, or they try to uh, to show a an exotic image of Iran. Right. Um, and neither one is, is true. Both are just parts of Iran. Iran is, is bigger than that. You know, my first music video that I did was also the same thing, that you always have these... Girls, you know, with long hair and the wind and and all that beautiful girls, I didn't have any of that. It was the the life of normal people on the streets in Tehran. Um, And I thought that showing the real image of Iran, good and bad, I'm, I'm not saying positive and I'm not saying negative. The truth, the truth has good parts and has bad parts. I thought showing that is the best way of educating ourselves and others about Iran.
0: Speaking of what you've been doing in the last four years, you are the founder of uh, the Kirostami Foundation in San Francisco. What is the mission of the foundation?
4: Um, Three things. The first thing is uh, to archive and organize the existing work of Abbas Kirastami. You know, he was very creative and at the same time very unorganized, so Mm -hmm. things are all over the place. Mm and I'm still working on organizing things. Uh, And that part, the the most important part was, uh, you know, the first part of his his career, the the first 20 years, he made films for Conor Havashvikri. And those films, they didn't leave Iran except for a couple of occasions, but uh, they were also in a very bad physical shape. So I thought the first thing that we should do is is saving those films. The second part of the mission of of Kirosami Foundation is to finish his unfinished project. He had two films, one short film, uh, Take Me Home, and one full-length film, uh, 24 frames, which I did, I finished those things. And he also has two um, large photo uh, collections that he has never shown anywhere. Um, So one of them, half of it, we showed half of it in collaboration with the, the Louvre Museum uh, they had an exhibition in Tehran. We showed half of them in collaboration with them, um, and then the second one we have not shown anywhere yet. And I, we were in the process of of showing parts of those in different places, but because of this COVID nineteen, um, everything stopped. So that was the second part. And the third part was the um, defining new projects that help promote his way of doing. Things or uh, or art projects, and one is Docunite. The other one is a is an art residency program that I started last year in France, in Paris, in south of Paris. Um, this year we had to cancel because of the COVID COVID nineteen as well. But it's an art residency, art and cultural residency program that I started under Kirsten Foundation.
0: Is it is it weird or um um? Does it make sense for the Kiera Stami Foundation to be in San Francisco? Would you base it in Tehran if you could?
4: Absolutely. Definitely. But there are a couple of, couple of things. Uh, the first thing is I don't live there and I'm the only one taking care of these things. I live here, so it has to be here. The second thing is the law in Iran gives permission to uh, to the government to basically take ownership of, of non-profit organizations and that's what happened to Bonyad the Gulshiri, the Golshiri Foundation, and another foundation. And after talking to several people there, which were involved in those foundations, they recommended that we should not have this in Iran. So, the legally Kiarostami Foundation is not in Iran, but we do things in Iran. Giving the awards to, to the museum is part of it. Uh, I'm, right now, I'm talking to a group of people about releasing his films, the, the restored version of those as a full collection in Iran. So I am working in Iran as well, but uh, legally the foundation is outside, unfortunately.
0: Tell me about the board members of the uh, Kiarostami Foundation, because um, it's certainly a testament to him, and you, I suppose, that uh, to, to to have these kind of names involved with the foundation. Tell me a little bit about how they got involved.
4: Yeah, um, so all these people that I have on the board, uh, there are people who either knew my father very well, or a couple of them that they didn't know him, they knew his work very, very well, uh, like Iñárritu or Richard Linklater, they know his work very well and are big fans of my father, so um, to all these people, Shirin Eshá, Tom Lodi they are on the board of Kirsten Foundation because of their admiration of my father's work. And also, Peter Becker, the owner of Criterion, he has been very, very instrumental with many things. Uh, you know, Criterion is the distributor of all of Kirsten Films in North America and the UK. Um, so these people, yes, I'm very grateful that they lend their names to me to put on Kirsten Foundation. It was not because of me, obviously. It was because of my father. Um, and their they're, uh, their presence there opens doors and makes it possible to to start conversations, um, and that's I'm really grateful for that.
0: And um, it's really it's good to get to talk to you and and to hear about all your projects. I know that this is probably not the easiest subject to talk about, uh, but could you talk about your father's passing? Did did you get a chance to see him while he was unwell in that final period?
4: unfortunately not um, the reason was because of different issues uh, you know you never know you never really know if you can go back to Iran or not so yes. what the situation is and I think that's creating that paranoia is part of the part of the plan uh, so maybe I was paranoid but I, I checked with a couple of different sources and I could not go back to Iran I thought if I go there if I go in Iran but can't see my father or can't help that's that wouldn't help but then the last week on a Wednesday, uh, we moved my father from Tehran to Paris. And I had a ticket to go to Paris the, the next Wednesday. It happened very fast. So uh, I needed a week to wrap things up and go to Paris. And I, I suppose my plan was to stay with him for as long as it uh, takes. But unfortunately, uh, before that Wednesday, he passed away on a on monday so i didn't get to see him no
0: so where exactly were you when you found out
4: i was at home um i got a call from paris and i saw the name i knew i knew what happened it was it was early in the morning and i
0: yeah that's what happened what was the last conversation you had with him
4: so when he was sick during that, that four months of illness, um, you know, most of the time he was not conscious. But we talked several times, but he was very weak, very, very weak, and couldn't really talk. So it was more like just seeing him and not a real conversation. But the, the main conversation that I had was the night before he went uh, for surgery. And, you know, he he never said almost said nothing about my music videos when I made them but then I know that he was showing them to people when they went to his home they would take him to the screening we had a small screening room he would take people there and show my music videos hmm. but he never said nothing about my music very very small comments like I showed him a music video uh, homeless and he watched the whole thing and he said that one shot that you had it shouldn't have been there and he was right absolutely <laughs> and that was his whole feedback but then the night before he he had a surgery, and it's supposed to be a very simple surgery. He had to he, he planned he had planned to leave the country three days after that. So he's supposed to just go in, come out, and then go to China to shoot his next film. But um, the night before, he said the doctors told me that I have to rest. So I I stopped working at 10 p.m. and that was his, you know, taking it easy, not working right. late. Uh, and he said, uh, I know he was—he didn't—he wasn't computer savvy. He didn't know how to search for things. But he said, I went to YouTube and I found your music videos, and he started giving me very positive feedback about every single one of them mm-hmm. in details. And so I watched them all, and then we talked about that. It was a very strange conversation, to be honest. And the last time I saw him was actually in Toronto, um, just a couple of months before then. He was there for a show that he had there. And I came there to see him at, at Aga Khan Museum. I came there to see him, and then he went back to Iran a couple of months later. That happened.
0: And how did it feel when he, when you realized your dad? Had, I mean, we all want validation from our, our parents and the people we respect. What, how did it feel when you realized he had been through all your videos and was making comments about them?
4: Yes, it's true that we all need validation, especially between fathers and sons. And we had a, we had our ups and downs throughout the years. Obviously, like many other fathers and sons, but at some point, I stopped seeking validation because I wanted to be on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because he wasn't giving; he was actually a very supportive, very very supportive person, in most cases. Um, but I, for my own sake, I stopped looking for that validation. validation. But of course, I was looking for it. But the part that was, that felt unusual was uh, that he went on his own, searched for them, and looked at them. He was always too busy uh, with his own projects to do these things, and he did all of those, and he, and I thought this is a new phase of our relationship.
0: It's almost like he knew some something. He knew that this was the moment to.
4: Yeah, you know, he was very, it's a, it was very unusual, but he was very depressed. Uh, he didn't even know what depression was for many years, like for all his life. He literally didn't understand depression. Um, but then there was a girl that who um, who was like my father's daughter, the daughter that he never had. And he always wanted to have a daughter. And she she spent a lot of time with my father, took care of him in many different ways. She and her husband, they both were very close friends. Um, and he always said that there are two people in my life, that if, that if they die, I have no reason to stay. One was his mother. The second was this girl, um, Hamideh Razavi. And about a year before he died, a oh, little less than a year, my grandmother died. And a few months after that, this girl had a car accident and died. And after that, my father was completely, completely depressed. And when I saw him in, in Toronto, he was very much depressed. And like he would just sit there and start crying. And, and that, again, you don't get it, that he, that I couldn't even imagine in my life to see that. Um, and he he said this after Hamideh, uh left us, uh, I just couldn't recover. And if you watch 24 frames, one of those frames, uh, there are a bunch of seabirds right next to the sea that are flying and somebody um, shoots and kills one of them and all these seabirds, they seagulls, they uh, they fly away. They leave the scene. And then after a while, a couple of them, they just sit there. And after a while, others come back and start flying and then playing again. But those three, four, they sit and they don't go back flying. And that was the story that he made that for Hamid. And that's how he felt, that other people went back to their normal lives, but he couldn't do it after that. So he basically lost a child, and, and he couldn't recover after that. And I think at some point, you know, he, my um, cousin, Omar, he took care of my father a lot during that time. And um, when he could come home, he would stay with her, and sometimes she would go stay with my dad. And he told my uh, cousin at some point that, do you think it's worth fighting? Because he was going through all this. He was l- literally fighting for his life after four um, unsuccessful surgeries. And uh, he asked her that, do you think it's worth fighting? I don't think it's worth fighting. And, and I think after that he just stopped fighting and he left.
0: You mentioned 24 frames. And the the posthumous completion of that film in twenty seventeen that you were you were involved in, how hard was it to be involved in that after your dad's passing?
4: Probably one of the most difficult projects that I've ever done, um, and it wasn't just like that. You know, after my father passed away, I uh, I became much closer to him because all my life I was doing my things he was doing his things and I would go see him once a year but then I had my own life after he passed away I just started going through his stuff and every day I don't remember spending that much time in my mind with my father ever Um, part of it was his poetry part of it was this 24 frames and all that Um, so emotionally it was very difficult but also the, the about the project itself the most difficult part was I had to keep reminding myself that this is not my project this is my father's project so what I have to do is I have to I have to learn what he was thinking when he was doing this you know in a way what would Jesus do if if it was here so I, I had to keep reminding myself all the time that what would apples do for this scene for this part for the sound for all of those fortunately he had done most of the creative parts. Um, the, the only artistic thing that we did for the for the film was designing the sound of it, which is a big part of the film. Um, so I had an opinion about something, I had to myself, it's not up to me, I have to realize why I was it. So I had tried to find the stories behind those four-minute-long uh, videos. Some of them I couldn't find the story, but some of them I could, like the one that I just told you. So when you know the story, then the way you look at it changes a little bit. And, um, and that was emotionally and you know even just project doing a project it was it was not an easy project
1: it's good
0: to talk to you ahmed um before i let you go you know you just talked about how you you feel closer you felt closer you had a new um appreciation for your relationship with your father and for him after his passing the anniversary of his death is later this week and the life and loss of your father meant an enormous amount to many Iranians, both in Iran and and those in the diaspora. It it may be that many felt that this legend was robbed from us, you know, all the more stinging given our distance and disconnect with contemporary Iran. How does that legacy, that devotion of people of Iranian descent to him translate for you and your life, being the son of an icon
4: like Abbas Um. I'm very grateful and it's a lot of responsibility, both of. Just just taking care of taking care of what he has done is a, is a big responsibility and it's it is challenging doing it from here, from afar and with everything that's going on there in Iran. Um, it is challenging, but I'm grateful for the attention that he still people are giving to him and his work. And I think uh, so for me it was on a different level it was a different way. But I think many people there, based on what I see on Instagram and internet and all, uh, people are rediscovering him, many parts of him. And I'm hoping to be able to make his work more available in Iran, including his films, as I mentioned, and his uh, poetry and his other things. Um, so I have some ideas about about doing these things, and I hope to get to do those things every year.
0: Thank you so much for doing this today.
4: Thank you, Jean. I appreciate it.
0: Ahmad Kiarostami, a producer, filmmaker, entrepreneur, founder of the Kiarostami Foundation. He spoke to us from San Francisco today. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Rook. Thank you to the amazing Rook team. Thank you to those of you out there supporting us, uh, subscribing, and uh, telling people about this uh, new podcast and new show. I want to go out on one of the songs that uh, Ahmad did a video for amongst the famous Iranian artists he's done videos for. This is actually from 2010, and it's actually Gugush, revisiting a well-known song of hers, Me, my, me and the Birds of uh, of My House, would be the translation. This is with guitar and arrangement by our dear friend Babak Amini. Thanks again for listening. Mizun bashin.
2: ای چرا هر بحانه از تو روشن از تو روشن ای که حرفای غشنگه منو آشدی داده با من من گونجش کا خونه دیدن ادات به هو یه دیدن تو باز می آیم که مثل هر روز برامون دونه تو اگر خونه نباشی <مسلم> <مسلم> <خبی> تو به هو يديدن مچ هر ماستولو منو خونه به Carving